a Quaker elder, educator, activist, and founder for the Center of Courage and Renewal. Parker J. Palmer has become a light for so many of us, especially here within the good, true, and beautiful community. His books include titles like The Promise of Paradox, The Active Life, A Hidden Wholeness, and Let Your Life Speak. And his latest book just came out this past summer, On the Brink of Everything, Grace, Gravity, and Getting Old. Hi, I'm Ashton Gustafson, and this is Good, True, and Beautiful. But before we get started, a message from this episode's featured nonprofit. Gravity, a center for contemplative activism, is for people who care about their spirituality and want to make the world a better place. We're located in Omaha, Nebraska, in the heartland of America, but we work with people all over the country and around the world. We offer contemplative retreats, spiritual direction, and Enneagram consultations and workshops. Learn more about what we're doing at gravitycenter.com. Hey friends, Ashton Gustafson here, and welcome to another episode of Good, True, and Beautiful. You know, ever so often, I, I pinch myself that this little side project um, has now become uh, just this beautiful, diverse, mysterious table uh, where so many of us have joined, and then I get to literally experience and speak with some of my favorite spirits and minds and wisdom teachers uh, that I've had the opportunity to cross paths with. Today is one of those days where I am again pinching myself. He came on our show a couple years ago. He and I, we just walked down Wisdom's Road and laughed and had a beautiful time. And uh, he's written books like Let Your Life Speak, The Promise of Paradox, The Active Life, A Hidden Wholeness. His latest book, On the Brink of Everything, just came out recently. And you probably know who we're talking about. Parker J. Palmer, he's joining us today from Wisconsin. And I am uh, absolutely honored and thrilled to get to share some time again with him, uh, introduce him to our group here, and just see what lovely, beautiful, mysterious things, as always, he has to teach us. So with that being said, Parker, welcome back. Thank you, Ashton. It's great great to be with you again. And I, I, isn't it true that all great things begin small, like Apple computer begins in a garage <laughs> somewhere in the, the Bay Area? So I'm, I've been delighted to watch the growth of your work in recent years. Well, well um, you have been such a light to me, my life, my family, my business. I mean, I, um, I am overwhelmed with gratitude uh, for you and your work in the world. Um, Thank you. You bet. You bet. So I know I gave you my my bio from as a redneck from Texas, but like when you introduce yourself and your work in the world, for maybe some of our listeners that haven't crossed paths with you, uh, where do you begin? Well, I I always say that um, for for sixty years, um, I'm nearing age eighty in February. Um, I've been a a writer. Uh, traveling teacher and a social activist. And I think that pretty well sums it up. Um, I, I did a PhD at Berkeley in the 60s, which of course was a very interesting time to be there. But by the end of that decade, with my PhD in hand, the, the cities were burning, my heroes had been assassinated, the Vietnam War was raging. And I just felt called to take my uh, 
training in sociology somewhere other than the academy. So I went to Washington, D.C. and became a community organizer. Um, And after five years of that very demanding work uh, on racial justice, I um, decided to take a year off, uh, a sabbatical, and with my wife and our three kids, I went to a Quaker living learning community near Philadelphia called Pendle Hill, where we kind of mixed uh, the monastery with the ashram, with the kibbutz, with intentional communities, all based in in Quaker faith and practice. And um, 80 people lived together a daily round of uh, eating meals and worshiping Quaker style in the morning and doing physical labor and studying and participating in social action. And that year there as an adult student, what I thought was a sabbatical from my uh, community organizing work in Washington, stretched into 10 more years as <laughs> dean of studies at Pendle Hill. And wow. of course, living that way was a transformative experience for me, um, a genuine community of profound sharing. Uh, for example, we all made the same base salary, no matter whether you had a Ph.D. from Berkeley and you were dean of studies or you were an 18-year-old just uh, taking a year off because you didn't know where to go after high school working in the kitchen there. Um, And so that was a very formative time in my life, and that's actually where my um, writing career, which had really begun when I was in my mid-20s, not so much a career as an obsession. I just had to write (laughs) Um, uh, But my writing career started taking off at Pendle Hill um, with the help of such wonderful people as uh, Henry Nouwen, the late Mm -hmm. Henry Nouwen, Mm -hmm. a great writer and spiritual leader. So from there, um, um, after that 10-year period, I basically started working independently as a writer, traveling teacher, and social activist. And along the way, I established a nonprofit called the Center for Courage and Renewal, which now has over 300 facilitators around the world and is um, doing all kinds of work helping people in the, in the helping professions rejoin soul and role, mm. um, or to put it a little differently, to bring their identity and integrity more fully into their personal, professional, and public lives. So that's been very rewarding. I retired from my role as senior partner of the center about a year ago. And and uh, at that point, my good friend, Carrie Newcomer, the singer-songwriter, and some of your listeners will know, Carrie Newcomer and I established a new project called The Growing Edge, which invites people in a variety of ways, online and face-to-face, to explore their growing edges personally, mm. politically, uh, and professionally. And uh, I would just uh, welcome any of your listeners to visit our our website at newcomerpalmer.com. It's N-E-W-C-O-M-E-R, Palmer, P-A-L-M-E-R.com. That's the Growing Edge website. Beautiful. Well, good gosh. What a beautiful story you have led. Um, and I like, you, you know, you all, in so much of your writing, you always... Something, something started at Pendle Hill within you. It seems like you come back to that a lot, um, mm-hmm. and that that Quaker lifestyle really set a beautiful tone. I think for 
the trajectory and the compassion, the unity, the diversity um, that I think your work has really opened all of our eyes to over the years. Um, well, I, I, I think you're right that Pendle Hill had an enormous impact on my life. I, I think I learned so much there about human equality and about the dynamics of real face-to-face community, uh, about ways of, of joining the inner and outer life, yeah. Uh, yeah. the life of contemplation and the life of social action. And, and that, uh, that has become terribly important to me. And, of course, that was laced in with my um, meeting, as it were, Thomas Merton, I actually met him a year after he died through his writing, wow. and uh, he kind of became my mentor and, and patron saint in the way some writers <laughs> have, have a capacity to do. And so that 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 uh, kind of double whammy of of Quaker intentional community, Quaker principles and practices, and um, the witness of of Thomas Merton over the years. Um, had a lot to do with shaping my journey, for sure. Mm, beautiful. He's done that for a lot of us, hasn't he? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so uh, one of the things, like you could you could teach a clinic just on naming books. I, I love how, how you um, choose the, the titles of your books. This latest one, On the Brink of Everything, um, it's a little, it's, it's different than your other books. It, it's kind of a series of essays and things like that as you reflect on, you know, the good, true, and beautiful that you've discovered over the years. H- how, did, how did this book um, come to realization? Well, as you know, Ashton, because we've talked about this before, um, for me, writing is always a process of self-examination, self-exploration. Um, not, I hope, narcissism, but the kind of thing that Socrates had in mind when he said the unexamined life is not worth living. <laughs> um, and I think a lot of people think of writing as, um, as as getting a head full of ideas, maybe through research or whatever, and then sort of committing them to, to paper, but you know, downloading them to the to, to a word file or the printed page. Um, for me, writing is very different from that. It's it's a process of sitting down at the keyboard and learning what I'm thinking and feeling and what it may mean as I write. So it's it's a kind of unfolding of mind and, and heart and spirit. And in the case of this book, it was a matter of um, beginning to take seriously the process of aging, which I think once most of us get past 65 or 70 or 75, um, we realize, oh, I'm getting old, and I can't um, live in denial of that anymore, even though this is a culture that wants me to live in denial of aging and especially in denial of death, um, a terrible problem in our culture, leaving uh, old people feeling very marginalized and, and also leaving death a very frightening prospect that people mm-hmm. don't talk about nearly enough in, in order to hold it in a life-giving way. So uh, I began writing about these things not in long book form, but in short form. I wrote essays, I wrote poems. Many of the essays 
or some of the essays anyway, appeared uh, at at the website of Krista Tippett's On Being program, public radio program that many people know. She does such a brilliant job interviewing folks and then posting things online that are related to the topics that interest her. So for about six years, I was a weekly columnist with On Being, and I still pop up there occasionally. Um, But this book uh, brought together a number of those pieces, plus a number of pieces from other sources, commencement talks that I had given, um, occasional papers on this or that subject, a long essay on Thomas Merton that was uh, published on the occasion of of his 100th anniversary. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, as I studied those, uh, those pieces, those various pieces, I began to to find an arc uh, that into which I thought they would fit or through which I thought they could flow. So the book has seven sections that takes me through different stages of my life process. And um, uh, each of those sections has four or five essays and, and poetry by other people as well as uh, poems of, of my own. So it it was a putting it together was a um, you know it was a very life giving exercise for me and I'm so glad I did it because it 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 became a probe into my own experience of aging that mm-hmm. is already serving me well and I think will continue to do so in, on into the future if it serves other people well I'm I'm very very grateful for that I. I, I like to. Uh, I'll say one more thing about my writing, Ashton. I, sure. I like to say that. Uh, I like to tell the story that with each of the ten books I've published, the marketing people at the publisher will come to me and they will say, "Who is this book for? Who are you writing to?" And my answer always, from the very first book, has been, "Well, it's for whoever buys it." <laughs> and. <laughs> The marketing people will say, well, you, that's really not very helpful, Parker. <laughs> and, I, and I will say, well, that's your problem, not mine, right. because I have, I've learned over the years that I never know who I'm writing for. Hmm. Um, my books have been bought by a, a range and a variety of people that I couldn't have imagined mm-hmm. would be interested in them when I began writing. But um, what I've always been able to say is that I – what, what I can tell you is where I'm writing from. Hmm. And, uh, and I'm writing from the deepest place that I can reach in me, hmm. whether that's in this current book as an aging uh, man or in a previous book, um, Healing the Heart of Democracy, about being a citizen or in The Courage to Teach about being a teacher. I'm writing from the deepest place that I can reach in myself with confidence that if I do that, I have at least a chance of reaching a similar deep place in other people. Hmm. And um, that, that, that's the kind of writing that I love to do. That's the, kind of, the only kind of writing that I find worthwhile doing. So Beautiful, beautiful. And what a free place to write from. You know, you're mm-hmm. not attached to outcomes. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's so important to to be not attached to outcomes. We all care about outcomes, of course, so we work hard on 
the craft and, and de- try to develop the skills necessary to do what we're doing. We want our work to make a difference. But, you know, one thing that becomes very clear as you get older is that if you hook everything in your life to outcomes um, you and you have high values like outcomes around love, truth, and justice, you're going to die in despair because nobody who's ever lived by those values has ever achieved uh, success. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and nobody who's lived by the values of love, truth, and justice has been able to die saying, I'm sure glad I devoted my life to those things because now everyone in the world can check them off their to-do lists forever. <laughs> um, you know, instead, what you need is a higher standard mm. uh, by which to by which to hold yourself accountable, and and I think the name of that standard is faithfulness, by which I simply mean being faithful to your own gifts, being faithful to to the needs you see around you, and being faithful to the variety of ways in which your gifts might help to meet some of those needs. I, I I'm convinced that. If we cling to effectiveness or outcomes as the only measure of our work, what happens is we can see all around us. We take on smaller and smaller tasks because those are the only ones you can get outcomes mm-hmm. with. And the only ones so, we can manage, the only ones we can ex- maneuver the expectation. Exactly, yeah. and, 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 and achieve uh, with any degree of measurability. So my favorite example is that in this country we we are no longer really interested in educating children. All we are interested in is getting children to pass tests. Right. And those are two completely different tasks. And and we're damaging a lot of children and a lot of teachers and a lot of future possibilities by being so ob- obsessed with with the achievable task of getting kids to pass tests while abandoning the noble task and the unending task of helping children lay a foundation for a lifelong education mm. and growth as a person. So that, that's a that's an example that most audiences I speak with almost come to their feet, um, you know, applauding out of recognition that this is true and this has to change. Mm, totally. Yeah, I'd never thought about that in the way that what the soul longs for, what the soul wants, expansion, beauty, meaning, um, wonder, awe. These things, they don't fit on test exams. They don't, you can't put them on a scale. Um, mm-hmm. And I think education gets to be a place that if it's if we're going to approach it from a holistic standpoint, um, of what you know, figuring out what it means to be human, that uh, we have to expand our horizons mm-hmm. and move away from just test scores and, and specific standardized testing, if you will. Very much so. And yeah. you know, the damage that we're doing by not recognizing that kids come to school from very different places in life, some privileged and advantaged, some at the other end of that continuum they have very different needs they have very different gifts and potentialities and by failing to recognize 
this this rich diversity of forms in which human beings come from a very young age, um, we're really shortchanging yeah. a lot of children, and we're shortchanging our society. Um, I, I think you know. I don't. I don't think you have to look around much to know that the the level of sort of thoughtfulness of 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 really being able to to do what what Socrates called live an unexam uh, live an examined life the, the the level of insight and understanding is pretty low in our society right now yeah. and i have to believe that a lot of that is because of this mechanistic model of education that um doesn't doesn't make people more intelligent about the things that count but you know to coin a phrase only only educates them in 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 what what's countable on right. test scores so that's that's exactly the wrong direction and for education to be going got our hands full don't we mm, <laughs> we do yeah, big jobs so um you know, if, if I was going to give a blurb of, of this latest work of yours on, on the brink of everything, um, it is your personal uh, reflections, experiences over, you know, really saying, hey, this is, this is how you live and move into an enjoyable life, a sustainable life, one of meaning and purpose. This is how you keep the soul alive. Um, I really feel like it's your kind of state of the union <laughs> address over all of the things you've learned. Um, one big word for me in, in these last couple of years has just been sustainability with regards to the soul. And in the very first part of the book, you were talking about safeguarding the soul. And you, you kind of came at it um, around the word enough. Um, and this, mm. is, this is a conversation on abundance versus scarcity, but you wrote once about how important the word enough was for you in safeguarding the soul. Would you hold my hand and kind of walk with me on exactly what you're getting at there? You bet. Um, well, the first thing I'm, I'm tempted to do on that is, is to mention an, another book by a young friend of mine, as you, as you know, um, i I get a tremendous amount out of intergenerational relationships, right. yep. and I and I know that we'll probably be talking about that at some point because it's a prominent part of the book. But I have a young younger friend; she's half my age, so in her late thirties, named Courtney Martin, yep. Yep. who uh, has recently written a book called "The New Better Off." And when I asked her. I said, that's a great title. Where where did you get it? And she said, well, it comes from this very common phrase these days that my generation or the generation just behind me will be the first generation in American history who will not be better off than their parents economically because of hmm. the, the growing distortions of the American economy and distribution of wealth. And she said, as I thought about that, I thought, well, I think that, you know, that that premise involves a certain narrow and limited definition of what it means to be better off. And she said, I think that my generation has a, 
the potential, the capacity to be better off if we re- redefine those ter- that mm-hmm. term. And I said, so, so give me an example. And she said, well, my parents' generation, at least in the, in the social class uh, in which she grew up, they had enough money to live very, very individualistic and privatized lives, which for most, you know, white, middle, upper middle class folks is the way it goes. Um, you live in a, on a block with 20 other families, but you all have, you know, you all have your own lawnmowers, you all have your own kitchens, you all have your own washing machine and dryer, you all have your own cars and your own everything because your affluence means that you don't need each other. Mm. Um, and again, I'll go back to Pendle Hill briefly and say our, our economic model there was a model of radical equality. Everybody gets the same salary no matter what your credentials or your role. So we had to do, we were compelled to do a lot of sharing of equipment, jobs, and so forth. So I I knew immediately what Courtney meant, and I knew that my life at Pendle Hill had a richness to it that life in a in a single family dwelling in a in a, in a suburban where there are a lot of people but a lot of isolation hmm. does not have. So I think that it's partly a matter of of um, you know redefining. Um, what we mean by more, what we mean by abundance. Um, the, the whole abundance scarcity thing, as you know, Ashton, is something that I've been thinking about and wrestling with in my own life for a very long time. I think I probably wrote my first pieces around that topic in around 1980 or so, so it goes back a few years. Um, and I, I think that I think that we have a messed up definition of abundance in this culture. It, it means more money than we need, more food than we need, you know, fancier shelter than we need. And it often means um, uh, kind of acts of piracy where we're, we're taking those things uh, in a way that, that takes them away from other people. Um, I don't think there's any honest way to look at the American economy without saying that it involves um, a tragic and frankly very dangerous maldistribution of wealth. Um, you know, in the in the wealthiest society on the face of the planet, we truly, truly should not have a quarter of our kids showing up at school hungry every morning. That's just an abomination. We, we should not have as many homeless people as we have, including lots and lots of veterans mm-hmm. from a string of wars uh, who have PTSD or some version of it that has thrown them into mental illness, alcoholism, drug abuse, and homelessness, poverty. So... Um, we, when you have a messed up definition of abundance and you've got people you know, fighting hard for the biggest piece of the pie they can get and basically saying, well, let the devil take the hindmost, you know, those people who aren't getting big pieces of pie, that's their fault, that's their problem. I've got what I need for me and mine and I really don't care about the rest. 
it, it bothers me greatly in our in our political situation at this very moment that that we have people defending um, federal government practices that that leave kids in in cages along the southern border of our country, uh, separated from their parents by by whimsical policy decisions that aren't well enough implemented to, implemented to even know who the parents are or where the parents are, scarring a whole generation of kids from from south of the border. And then you have people saying, but I'll overlook all that and I'll overlook the dog whistles to white supremacists and I'll overlook the latent anti-Semitism and the, in, the encouragement of the skinheads. I'll overlook all that because my family and I are doing better economically. Um, that seems to me to be a moral abomination and certainly not some something that anyone who subscribes to the highest values of the world's great religions would 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 want to live by. Right. So, at the root of all of that is is the question: what's what's enough? And um, I think when you start when you start realizing that enough can never be um, answered by material things and mm-hmm. money. Um, it's an old, old story that uh, money and material goods just in the long run don't make you happy. Some of the most miserable people I know are people who can buy anything, but something is missing from their lives, and it, and they don't even know what it is. They, they don't have a clue as to what it is because they've been so devoted to accumulating material enoughness not realizing that that, there, that 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 there's never enough on that level so clearly the direction in which we have to think is how to limit our lust for material enoughness to open up space for spiritual psychological relational communal abundance to come in um i, I don't think that community is simply the the source of abundance or the generator of abundance, I think community is a form of abundance Mm. in and of itself. And it's a form that the human soul longs for. We long for relationships. And there have been, you know, by now we have so many studies showing that people with rich and meaningful relationships, even a few, you know, it doesn't have to be a million, but just a few that aren't on Facebook uh, or online somewhere, face-to-face, real real relationships. Such people live longer. They get over diseases faster. They tend to be healthier, both physically and, and psychologically. I, I, I learned this lesson early on by growing up in an affluent community on the North Shore of Chicago. I was born in Chicago, but my family eventually moved up to the North Shore, which is a string of affluent suburbs along Lake Michigan. I grew up in a community where everybody had more than enough in terms of material things. They had bank accounts full of money and they had larders full of food in in large and elaborate houses. But I, I observed even as a kid that 
they always felt they didn't have enough. There was always this need for the next raise or the next um, purchase, you know, the next big fancy car, the latest model, whatever. And as I thought about the why of that, I thought, well, what they're really missing is the community that comes from being interdependent with one another. Mm. Um, they, they're not spending any time now trying to reach out to meet the needs of other people. So when they come to their day of need, there will be no one there for them. And somehow they know it already, even though they may be 10, 20, 30, 40 years away from their day of need. The thing underneath the, the thing. I'm sorry? That's the thing underneath the thing that was... I think it them. is. Yeah. I, I absolutely think it is. It's yeah. the uh, it's the question behind the question. That's it's right. the, pain, the pain behind the pain. Yeah. And I think the answer is to, you know, involves redefining both scarcity and abundance. One of the things that uh, my favorite definition of contemplation, um, as I've entered in and studied, you know, Henry Nowens, Thomas Keating's, Father Richard Rohr, your writings, um, it's kind of hard to just exactly hand off what the contemplative tradition really is to just someone that's kind of passing by. But I loved how, and I think our last conversation you shared with me that your definition is contemplation is anytime you penetrate illusion and touch reality. And um, I've said that hundreds of times since our first call to people that um, it's, it's dropping our illusions. It's penetrating those and touching that which is real. Um, tell me how you found, I guess, contemplation not to be so much a specific practice, whether it's, centering prayer or all of these other practices and disciplines, but you've just kind of turned it into this almost like a posture where you're always being on the lookout for what is true and real. I would, I would love to hear your reflections on living a life mm -hmm. of contemplation. Yeah, well, I think you'll find out that it, it's an answer that kind of loops back on itself. I thank you for the question. It's, an, it's, it's been an important point of reflection for me. So, let, let let me start with the fact that that I learned years ago that I'm I'm a failure at um, at practicing some of the standard forms of meditation or contemplation. I'm just a miserable failure. Uh, I'm not good at you know the lotus position. I'm not good at <laughs> sitting on a cushion for hours. I'm certainly not good at doing it in a. Uh, in a Zen sitting where I might get whacked by the Roshi <laughs> for, <laughs> for nodding off or falling asleep. Um, and I'm not good at chanting mantras, you know, or, yeah. or doing um, uh, uh, apophatic meditation right. upon right. an icon or something of that sort. The, I, I understand that those are wonderful and, and serviceable for many other people, and I respect that. I admire that. It's just not me. So, um, for you know, I, the most dramatic example I can give is that when I 
sort of fell in love with Thomas Merton through his writings, I, I thought, oh, I know what I need to do with my with, to become a contemplative and to live that kind of life. I need to become a monk. <laughs> and then 24 hours later, I'm thinking, but wait a minute, I'm married, I have three children, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I'm a Protestant, I'm a Quaker, whatever. <laughs> I don't think I qualify, yeah, really. Yeah. I, it would, it, so I began to, to ask myself, so what if the forms of contemplation as they're conventionally presented aren't for me or aren't working for me what's the function of mm-hmm. contemplation there's always form and there's always function and it came to me that in every form of contemplation i knew anything about the ultimate function was to be able to penetrate illusion and touch reality and by that i mean penetrate illusions about ourselves yeah and about the world, and about the relation between the two, and touch the reality about all of those same things. Who I really am, what the world is really about, and how the two of us, the, the two parts really connect. So when I understood the function, then is when I began looking around in my life for the forms that contemplation took, which were unconventional forms. The, the handiest example I can give you is, for me, contemplation has often taken the form of failure. Um, that's why I said this answer loops around on itself, because all of this began with my failure to be able to <laughs> contemplate in conventional ways. Um, I, you know, when, when I take on a task and then fail miserably at it that's that's when i stay awake until two or three in the morning trying to understand what went wrong and what went wrong is often that i was operating out of some illusion about myself Hmm. or about the world Uh, in my own case i wasn't for example really operating from my best gifts or i was failing to take into account my limitations and looking only at my potentialities, um, which which is sort of the American way. You know, every ki- kids are told you can do you can be anything you want when you grow up. Well, that's not true. Um, we all we all have limits as well as potentials, and if you understand your limits rightly and uh, you know not in a self-deprecatory way. Um, then, then you can work with what you have in in some very positive ways. So, uh, failure is is a big has been your gateway. <laughs> it's been my it's been one of my gateways for sure. Big contemplative lens for me. Whereas, well. if I succeed at something, um, you know, I I think sometimes we can be cursed by success because if I succeed at something. You know, I spend the next 48 hours congratulating myself. What a good boy am I? You know, what a, what a wonderful person I am. And you don't really learn much that way mm-hmm. that advances your own life journey. The, the other quick example I would give is um, my the three deep dives I've taken in my life into clinical depression. And as you know, these are these are this is an experience I've written about yeah. because. Yeah. I wanted to offer it up as a service in a world where depression is so endemic, so widespread. And <clears throat> while this is this is not 
a practice that I recommend to anybody. I, indeed, I fervently hope that that you and whoever else is listening will not have to go there. If you go there, then you 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 have to find some way to make meaning out of what is an essentially meaningless experience. Mm-hmm. And th- that, too, is a form of contemplation because it, if you're lucky enough to be able to take step by step in a way that slowly brings you out of the deep darkness into uh, something where where you're where you can see a little bit more and then after after that eventually you sort of start walking back into the light um you've learned things about yourself and about the illusions that let you down uh and that that dropped you or slammed you into depression mm-hmm. Um, that I, that's, that's very valuable learning. And I hasten to add, not all depressions work the way I just described them uh, as, as you know, being let down by my own illusions. Some are strictly genetic or biochemical and have to be treated that way. But mine had to do with ego illusions, for example, about myself and falling flat on my face often enough that... Um, depression, situational depression was the result. So, you know, to come round to a, some sort of conclusion to this, to the answer to the question you asked, um, one way I like to put it is this. We have a, a strange habit in our society, seems strange to me. Someone comes up to us and says, I'm so disillusioned. <laughs> and our immediate response is to put an, an arm around their shoulder and say, I'm so sorry, you know, how can I support and encourage you and cheer you up? What we ought to say when someone says, I'm so disillusioned is, congratulations, <laughs> you've, lost a, <laughs> you've lost another illusion. <laughs> that means, that means literally disillusionment yeah. is losing another illusion. Yeah. And that means you're that much closer to reality. Good for you. Reality <laughs> is where God wants you to live. You know, reality is the best place to live because it's, it won't let you down once, once you have your feet on that ground. So uh, how, how can I disillusion you further and get you even closer to reality? And believe me, I'm the guy who can do it. So, you know, <laughs> hang around me for a while and you'll be thoroughly disillusioned. <laughs> That word that you just shared on contemplation could be a a life vest to somebody today. That mm. even in the midst of the darkest, most uncertain, mysterious, challenging, gut wrenching places, you're you're almost flipping the script a little bit to go, and there's something here for me, and there's another yeah. way to see, and there's something beautiful to hold on to. You just got to keep going. Yeah, exactly. You know, I uh, and and I think it's it it's not a concept that is mine alone. Far from it. Um, we have a long tradition of uh, thinking and talking and reflecting on the dark night of the soul. That's right, John of the Cross. Uh, and how how in Christian tradition, at least in contemplative tradition, people are thought to actually move closer to God when they understand. What, what that dark night experience means, and then in, in a more secular tradition, we have great a great book or great books like 
um, Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, which yeah. original was originally titled From Death Camp to Existentialism. And, wow. you know, here, here's a man who, who spent uh, a good time, amount of time in a Nazi death camp um, under the Third Reich and who, who writes out of the utter, utter misery and dehumanization of that experience about the various ways he found to encourage himself and others to find meaning even in that experience, to find that little spark of light in the darkness that keeps you going and can be fanned into a, an even larger flame. So th this is, I think, a very important concept that, again, uh, Americans, those Americans who live in affluence and relative security, um, just somehow think this shouldn't be happening to me. Hmm. Uh, you know, our people like me, our question often is, why me? Hmm. Well, I think wise people say, why not me? It's part of the human condition. I share that condition. Uh, for whatever reason, it's my turn now to go through this. And if if I look at it from the right angle, it actually these are actually experiences that kind of secure my credentials as a human being. Wow. Um, yeah. As yeah. you know, one of the things I say in the book is that when I've been in times of struggle and I've talked to a wise friend or a pastor or therapist about my struggle, the best words I've ever heard are, welcome to the human race. <laughs> you know, you know this, this doesn't mm -hmm. make you different from anybody else. We're all in this together. <clears throat> and so the best words that I would like to be able to speak to folks who bring their struggles to me are welcome to the human race. Mm. And then let's, let's, you know, journey together around these things that are the, are really hallmarks of the human condition yeah. Yeah. and not sort of black marks or demerits that you get because you're um, an underqualified human being. It's just part of the path. It is. There's the hidden wholeness, if you will. Um, yes. You know, yes. the the dark and the light, the certainty and the uncertainty. Yes, um, exactly. It's part of it. Wow. You know, um, one of the big things that I've had with some people that I've journeyed with in these last few years is the conversation of soul and role. And... Um, you do such a great job. Uh, really, that, that's, a, that's a whole other thread that kind of moves through a lot of your works. Um, and especially for people, maybe some of our listeners that are younger in their careers and, and kind of just beginning this thing called life, there's such a tug of war between job and vocation. At least it feels like there is sometimes. Um, how have you navigated these two worlds to where you can you can live and create something beautiful because it's it's both and right it's not either or um, yeah but I would I would love to hear um, your reflections on looking back over your decades of work in really holding hands with both of these aspects because you've done a lot of things you've had a lot of jobs yet mm -hmm. there's a specific base note 
that has that has followed you that that you have stayed true to how do you when you have these conversations with people how do you kind of set the tone for this dialogue mm. that's a great question and i do recognize that it's a very important question for a lot of younger folks it's also a very important question for a lot of middle-aged folks mm-hmm. who feel like they've missed their mark and and for older folks who are feeling like well my work has now been taken away from me what am i worth so um the way i think about it is this we all every human being struggles between the vocation to which he he or she feels called the, the sort of soul's imperative the heart's imperative you know if i could if i could rewrite the script of my own life I would not be selling insurance. I, w- I would be flying jet planes or something of that sort. Uh, or I, I would not um, be clerking for a company. I would be writing poetry on a desert island. And and we you know we all we all have have taken a journey where we may have tried to find our soul's calling in the work that we needed to do to make a living, but we haven't quite managed it. We haven't been able to bring those those two together or to overlap them in a significant way. And I think, you know, I think one of the most important things about the life journey is you have to treat it as a nonstop experiment Gandhi called his called his autobiography my experiments with truth and i've always loved that title because as soon as i saw it i thought that's a wonderful way to look at all of the moves that i've made in my life whether geographic moves or vocational moves or whatever um and to, and to say each of those was an experiment operating on the best hypothesis I had at the time and operating within the limits of necessity uh, to put food on the table for my family and a roof over our heads, um, you know, I I conducted an experiment. And and the, the only question is, did I learn anything from that experiment? Mm-hmm. And, and, and am I learning on a daily basis from whatever experiment I'm currently conducting so that, so that from the profoundly dissatisfying job, I learned enough to move on to something that was a bit more satisfying. Um, maybe something about me, maybe something about the world, maybe something about where they um, best converge. So, I, I've had many jobs that, that, especially in my earlier years, that were um, they were kind of against the grain. I think what I always wanted to be was um, was a writer um, and and a thinker and a teacher. Um, those, if, if you twine those together, that's kind of the red thread that I think runs through my life but early on in my life I had first of all I had trouble imagining that that would really be my true vocation that Mm. maybe the inner voice that was calling me there was just 
was was fooling was fooling me it was a, a voice of illusion i was the first person in my family to go to college I, I did not come from a learned tradition and so i had no reason to imagine and indeed i didn't imagine that i could ever write a book or give a talk or run a workshop or you know create a nonprofit that's devoted to helping other people sort these issues out in the in their own lives so we, some of us come into you know uh, start off on this journey with burdens of um, self-deprecation or self-limitation that we we have to find our way through and and so in those early years I the jobs I took were um, well I said for example that I was a community organizer in Washington DC I felt deeply called to that but I was a pretty thin-skinned young man and thin-skinned people don't last very long in in the rough and tumble world yeah. of community organizing, especially in the in the late '60s and early '70s around issues of racial justice, or even today. It's a tough world, and so I had to learn during that time about my limitations as well as my potentials. But but I had a certain you know naive purity of intention about me that allowed me to to do some worthwhile things in those times and to create some projects and programs that were based on hopeful um, expectations of people that, that we all in, do indeed have the better angels of our nature, as Lincoln called them, and created out of that naivete, if you will, yeah. some, some programs that helped weave that community together and um, prevent white flight and make it a more stable, uh, pluralistic, integrated community. Um, so I don't, you know, I, I never say to young people, oh, you're being so naive, because naivete can be a gift. <laughs> right. And it, yep. it, it, it's, you know, it's kind of like people looking back and saying that, you, you, you know, if, if I had known how much struggle there would be in in raising children, especially when they become teenagers, I don't think I ever would have wanted to become a parent. But but the naivete that took them there, um, imagining that everything is going to be as rosy as when the child is a babe in arms, um, it, it, it takes you down a path where you learn a tremendous amount and eventually learn to forge good adult relationships with your children as as you go, some of whom may become your best friends, which is, of course, a great joy. So <clears throat> we, I think we have to just keep taking it step by step and not expect, to, you know, to land the, the perfect intersection of of the job that puts food on the table and the job that makes our hearts sing right. right away. Lots of people, um, of course, you know, in, in the in the great, um, I don't know, stereotype, um, they wait tables by day and they write poetry or music or novels by night. And, you know, for a while, that's that's just the way it has to be. And a lot of people who write poetry or music or novels never get to the point where they can make their whole living that way but they you know they can keep moving 
the job and the vocation a little closer together, a little closer together, um, because all of those uh, art forms have a, a business dimension to them that that one can learn and help with and benefit from uh, in one's own work. So it's 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 a long journey. I don't think mine is over yet. I mean, I've just you know after 25 years of helping this nonprofit along that I that I established, the Center for Courage and Renewal, I have um, opened a, a new project with my friend Carrie Newcomer. Um, we're, we're not making a living off it, but we're doing something that um, that is deeply satisfying to our souls yeah. and, and to the souls of, of, of other people. Um, so, it, you know, it's... It, it's it is as they say it's complicated but it is. but i think i think the most important the most important thing that i would like to offer younger people is a a living breathing model exemplar of the fact that this path is walkable mm-hmm. and that i am glad when i have an opportunity to walk it with some of my younger friends, and and I w- I would hope that all elders would know what profound satisfaction there is in doing exactly that. Beautiful, yeah, and and I think that there's a little bit of liberation that comes with detaching these ideas that unfortunately we've been taught about our jobs, about our roles that they are going to be the gateways that makes the soul sing. Um, That, yes, that can happen. Um, But I think a life of curiosity, a life of um, staying committed to your authentic self within whatever the role is, just stay with it. And over time, gradually we make these decisions and suddenly we find ourselves doing work we love. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's, uh, I, I think there's some freedom there. That is, uh, don't, we shouldn't demand that uh, our roles or our jobs in life are these great things that, you know, set us free in life and make our souls sing. They can, but to hold them with just a little more fragility, I think, is a very important task. Yeah, I I think so, too. And, And, of course, one of the big drivers of a lot of youthful mistakes is along these lines is the thought that the most important thing here is for me to get on a path where I'm uh, 10 years from now, I'll be making more money than anybody I know. Hmm. And I, I have yet to meet a person for whom that is soul satisfying, Hmm. um, a soul satisfying path to be on. Um, I've met a lot of people who are on that path who are unhappy people, but who are so, who are so addicted to money or to material well-being that there's no way for them to get off it. I just don't think the human soul, uh, I don't think that primary among the, the yearnings of the human soul is a big bank account. Right. Um, you know, uh, the bodily needs do indeed need to be met. I'm not denying that for a moment. But, um, you know, God help the person who says my goal in life is to become the richest kid on the block mm. because it may happen, but it ain't going to make you happy. Mm. 
success without wonder and awe is a very lonely place. Very much. And and without compassion and service. Bingo. Yeah. All of the other things for which we're, we don't get monetary rewards. We get those other kinds of abundances that we were talking about earlier. So you, uh, there's just poetry swimming all through on the brink of everything, of course. Uh, you're a poet. I know how much poetry has um, given you uh, all forms of metaphors to hang on to in life. One of those poems was by Mary Sarton, and, and there was a line in there that was, at last act for love. And you, you talked a lot about the poem uh, in that section of the book. But what has that taught you? This idea of at last act for love. I think I sensed there was something very, very near and dear to you uh, in this poem, and I just wanted to hear your reflections on that. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for asking. Right. May Sarton wrote this great poem called Now I Become Myself, and um, it does indeed end the way you you said at last act for love after she's taken this long journey into selfhood. Hmm. Well, I, I think there's so many levels on which I can answer, could answer that question. And maybe I'll just cut to the chase. So, and I'll do it in, in an odd way. Um, when I was at Berkeley in the 1960s, a great student movement uh, was underway and I, experienced it from the inside um, it was a movement against uh, against conventional higher education it was a movement against um, governmental interference in our lives it was a movement against evils and horrors like the war in Vietnam and the racism that is so endemic to American society so it had good goals, but it was animated by hatred. And the kind of underlying slogan of the movement was tear the sucker down, hmm. you know, destroy, 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 search and destroy, search and destroy, throw a wrench into the machinery. Um, that movement failed. And, and as I sometimes like to say, a lot of the people that I knew in the early 60s in Berkeley who were devoted to transforming this society by the end of the 60s, they had gone off to Wall Street to, you know, join one of the, one, one of the mega stock firms or, 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 or become investment bankers or something of the sort because, because tearing things down didn't work. Um, I, I have a feeling, incidentally, that from quite a different angle, this, this current um, thing that's going on in our country emanating from Washington, D.C., is going to come to the same conclusion. Tearing things down doesn't work, and I think more and more Americans are going to be finding that out. Then I then I started getting involved in the civil rights movement. I started getting inspired by people like Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks and uh, Fannie Lou Hamer and Bernard Lafayette. So names known and unknown, um, but all of them 
known to me and often personally. And I began to realize that at the heart of nonviolent movements was not hatred but love, um, and and real love, tough love, mm-hmm. um, the, the kind of love that Dorothy Day, founder of the Catholic Worker, was fond of talking about by using a, a quote from Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky said, love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. And he meant that if you really love something, you you know, you put your life on the line for it, as these people did. And I was, I've, I've been so impressed at, with this long-term movement called the Black Liberation Movement that really began the first time a slave was, uh, a human being was enslaved and loaded onto a ship in Africa. That's when the Black Liberation Movement began, not just in the 1950s and 60s. And while it keeps experiencing setbacks, it has great persistence, great resilience, great sustainability, to use your word, and that comes from love, um, as as do the successes of of that movement, the securing of rights, which which we now have to do all over again, um, in in certain regards. So, uh, I think that to act at last for love is how you transform societies. It's how you transform relationships. It's how you transform yourself. I think that the inner work we talk about as, you know, whose aim is self-transformation gets nowhere if it doesn't begin in self-love, if it begins in self-loathing, if it begins in self-judgment. It, it's it's going to end up with just more of the same. It'll be a punishing journey rather than a journey of redemption. So that's what those words mean to me, and I think they are experientially grounded in, at every level of life. Our interior journeys of self-love will always lead us to the exterior journey of where we need to be loved in the world. Um, I think so. Yeah, I think I that's think what so. you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Man, well, I am, uh, I could do this all day, by the way. Um, I could do <laughs> um, One thing that I have started to ask some of the uh, people that we've had on, like yourself, um, is if, if you could just leave us with some type of parting remark, either that's a poem that's near and dear to you, uh, a benediction, just a good word. Um, I'm, I am uh, the table of beautiful souls that join the conversation here every week. It is beautifully di- diverse from all walks of life, um, and I can't think of anyone better than you, Parker, to um, just bestow upon us um, a, way of, a way of love, a way of life, a way of liberation uh, that we could take with us today. Well, thank you, Ashton. That's a big assignment, and, and we'd probably have to do another program to really live into that. But uh, um, I, I, um, I guess what I'd like to do is um, I'm, I'm sitting here holding a copy of 
my book, On the Brink of Everything in My Hands, and just looking at some of the poems in the book that I wrote. And since they're personal uh, testimonies, um, I think I'm going to read one of them, one of the shorter ones. It's called uh, Welcome Home, and it's at the end of Chapter 3 in this book, this collection of essays and poetry. Beautiful. Where I end each section with one of my poems. So this is called Welcome Home. It comes from a winter retreat I made um, five or six or seven years ago. And I think it will pretty well speak for itself uh, in both the its affirmation and the struggle that you will you will hear in it to keep returning to that affirmation. Welcome home. Alone in the alien, snow-blown woods, moving hard to stay warm in zero weather, I stop on a rise to catch my breath as the sun setting through bare-boned trees falls upon my face, fierce and full of life. Breathing easy now, breathing with the earth, I suddenly feel accepted, feel myself stand my own ground, strong, deep-rooted as a tree, while time and all these troubles disappear. And when, who knows how long, I move on down the trail and find my ancient burdens returning, I stop once more to say no to them. Not here, not now, not ever again. Reclaiming the welcome home the woods have given me. Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Parker. If you did, make sure you remember to share it with those you love and those you lead. And please, 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 If you have not taken the dive into his works like The Promise of Paradox, The Active Life, A Hidden Wholeness, Let Your Life Speak, please, please, please dive into these books, swim in the deep water of wisdom that he's given us, uh, and I promise you, all things you've been entrusted, your life, your relationships, your vocations, they will all become a lot lighter and a lot brighter. And as you approach this week, may you pause by the orchid, listen to the bluebirds sing, and be love. <laughs>